is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, the end of the war in Ukraine seems a long way away. Russian forces continue to attack cities. Russia did call for a limited ceasefire, so corridors could be set up for civilians to escape safely. But there are complaints that many of those routes lead right into Russia and its ally, Belarus. We go in-depth into uh, the war in Ukraine. We'll talk to a woman there who says she escaped her hometown next to Kiev after Russian tanks moved in. And Western journalists have been leaving Russia to avoid prison time for how they report on the war, which, by the way, they can't call a war. The U.S. working with its partners in Europe on a possible ban of Russian oil imports. We'll look into what this will do to already high gas prices uh, here. COVID antibody treatments can help immunocompromised people. There is a catch, though. you got to find who actually has it. And then you might soon be able to leave your vaccine cards at home when you go out to eat in L.A. City considering ending its rule. It requires restaurants and other indoor businesses to check for proof of vaccination. A quick check for you. How many masks are not masks people did you see over the weekend now that we you know got the many, lift on Friday? Yeah. Many, many non-masked There were many faces uh, yes, in Los Angeles. And, and, and uh, let us explain that uh, we are hoping to get in touch with Felix Light. We've heard him on the show a number of times. He's a CBS News reporter. Uh, he was in Moscow, and he is one of those Western reporters who have now left Russia. Uh, he's actually in London, uh, and he left because it is virtually impossible for Western reporters to talk about the war. And as I mentioned before, and I wasn't joking, it's because now in Russia it is illegal to call it a war. Right. Yeah. It's the uh, law that was passed. Right. We were talking about yeah. this a little bit on Friday, that it's 15 years for for what they say is misinformation. But what you know is actually the truth. It's what's going on. So if you report on this and call it something other than what they're calling it, so they being the Russians, this limited operation, you know, to go and liberate parts of Ukraine. That's what's coming out on state media. If you report anything other than that, then you're in big trouble. So we've seen all of these outlets, uh, CBS, ABC, Bloomberg, CNN, everybody's pulled out and they're just right. broadcasting in from the outside. But of course, no one in Russia is seeing that because the only thing on TV right now is the, the state channel. Yeah. And it's bad not only for the people in Russia, it's bad for us, too, uh, in the West, uh, because it deprives us uh, of information about what is going on in Moscow and, and, you know, whether or not there are protests on the streets. We know that there had been before and there have been many arrests. Uh, it's harder now to get that information because, as Mike just said, uh, Western reporters, Western news organizations are pretty much shut down out of concern. And it's a real one that reporting truthfully about what Russia is doing to and in Ukraine uh, could lead to the imprisonment uh, for long periods of time for those reporting it. I was watching a piece the other day, and I forget where now, but they were interviewing a, a few people in Russia, and they were saying, you know, what we're all doing is, uh, and this was a, a kind of a younger crowd and, and who had the means to do it and pay for it, is they're using VPNs so they can get yeah. around all the yeah. firewalls and go and look up the news elsewhere. And that's that's how it's getting in. And then there was a great story the other day that the BBC went in and took over a couple old shortwave radio stations, and it's broadcasting through because, you know what, it's on the air. You can't take it off. But that's how they're getting in. It's, you know, this is like 1950s stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, to bring people, if uh, after the weekend, uh, people have sort of, uh, if you've stopped kind of updating yourselves on what's happening in that very critical part of the world now, uh, it's still as dire a situation, perhaps more so, 
than it was just a few days ago. The flood of refugees from uh, Ukraine crossing into Poland. 60 Minutes last night. If you didn't watch yeah. uh, the Scott Pelley piece with the trains that kept coming in, yeah, just it this was wave, yeah. wave of, of, of people that are trying to, to uh, flee. And mostly, again, women and children because men of a certain age, if they're if, you know, able-bodied, are told, and many of them want to, by the way, stay behind in Ukraine to fight for their country. And we've seen some people going back in. You yes. know, some Ukrainian men from other countries in Europe saying, you know what, I'm going to go. I'm going to go in and fight. Right now, the uh, humanitarian crisis getting worse in Ukraine as Russian troops continue shelling cities. Food, water, medicine getting hard to find. Anastasia lives in Ukraine. She's from a town right next to Kiev, but she says she left once Russian tanks moved in. Anastasia was helping people there before escaping, and she joins us now. Anastasia, thank you for being with us. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share and to get the information out there. So uh, whereabouts are you uh, in in terms of position in Ukraine? I, I presume you've moved more westward or no? Yes. So in the last couple of weeks, I've had to move four times pretty much from Kiev and all the way to the west. So I'm in Lviv right now. That's our biggest city in the western Ukraine. When you had to leave your town, we mentioned it's because, you know, the Russians were getting closer. What was that like when you made that decision and what you were seeing, what you were hearing, you know, the surroundings? Um, basically, um, I left my actual home, which is in Kiev, on the first day of war. That was when uh, the explosions and the aviation bombing started. So I, I went to my parents' uh, home uh, right by Kiev, about 15 miles from the city itself. That's where we stayed for about eight days. Um, and honestly, I didn't think I would leave because we sort of believed it would be all over quickly because no one really believed it to be like a full-scale war. Everyone was like, okay, so maybe they just want to scare us to get like a more favorable negotiations position. And, you know, it's not going to be a long time. So that's why we stayed uh, close to Kiev and didn't go further. But in the eight days we stayed there, it pretty much went from like zero to 100 uh, because the fighting was happening heavily by the Hostomel airport which is uh, one of the airports in Kyiv region. And uh, we pretty much heard fighting nonstop, but it was kind of far away. It was about four to five miles. So it wasn't like right next to us. But the morning when we decided to leave, we woke up from the like from the whistle of rockets, which were flying above our house. And they literally destroyed an entire like civilian neighborhood about a mile away from us. And that's when we realized that probably if we stay if we stayed there it would be too late so we left and uh, we were actually correct because at this point uh, you said correctly there's a humanitarian crisis they're shooting civilians who are trying to flee so we literally left probably 48 hours before the catastrophe broke out so you're traveling with how many people from your family uh, well, our parents, like, I'm traveling with my boyfriend. Our parents are already abroad, so my mom is in Poland, and his parents are planning to cross in the next days. And you? Um, no, we're definitely not going anywhere. We're going to stay here. And why are you going to stay? Well, because it's our home. I really feel like it's Russians who should leave. They have this whole huge country they can occupy any time, and this is our country, so we're going to stay here. Uh, you mentioned your boyfriend. H how old are you guys, by the way? Uh, I'm 22 and he's 26. 
26. Uh, is he now engaged in fighting? Because, uh, as you know, uh, I, I guess most of the men there, between certain ages anyway, are actively involved in the fight. Uh, right now, our army is very well prepared, so we don't have uh, like we don't have to mobilize all the men in the country. Right now, the only men who are in war uh, and in combat are the ones who actually have military experience. So they have fought before in the east, or you know, in any other circumstances. So he doesn't have any hands-on experience in fighting. So he wasn't mobilized. He's not literally not needed right now. So if you come to uh, the military place, like to to ask whether you can serve they're they're just like leave your phone number but we're set so what is your plan you say you know what this is my country i'm staying obvious reasons um you want to help how are you going to try to help because this is some of what you were trying to do before you had to move and then move again uh, yes. Yeah, so what what we're going to do to help from here is uh, we're going to definitely volunteer to do uh, to make the nets for our posts, for military posts, for tanks, to cover them from aviation. We're going to don- donate blood. We're definitely helping financially to uh, Red Cross, to our army, to territorial defense. So they have money to buy uh, weapons and food just generally. Uh, we also engage in informational war actively as well because we're here right now. We know best what's happening here. So like such interviews is what I've been doing lately as well. And of course, we're helping refugees. Uh, Lviv, where I'm at right now, took in about 300,000 people in the last week. And uh, the city itself is not that big. So they really need help in coordinating these people around. So we've been helping in those directions. Uh, you and your boyfriend, what, what do you do for a living there before the war started? Your English was very good, so, so I, I gather you've had a lot of contact uh, in your daily uh, work, whatever it is that you do, with people who speak English. Oh, yeah. Well, I lived in the U.S. actually for a year, uh, so I was an exchange student in Illinois. Uh, that's probably where I got my Midwestern accent, just a bit. Uh, my boyfriend is a lawyer, so he works at a bank, uh, the biggest bank in Ukraine, and I work in IT, so software development services, and I work in sales. You know, you sound okay and eager to do things to help, but but what is it like to, because this is not a situation that, that is easy uh, for obvious reasons, to know that a mile away from your parents, you know, it's gone and was bombed, and then to know so many civilians have been killed. I mean, emotionally, how are you doing? Uh, honestly, we uh, I feel like I can speak for a lot of people who left uh, Kiev and other regions right now. We feel a lot of guilt because it really feels like we left our home in the trouble. And that's really something that's one of the reasons I'm so actively involved in all these uh, like helping and volunteering because it really helps me cope with the, what happened. Uh, overall, I think it's it's just it feels like it's been a very long day since the 24th when the war started. And up, uh, up until now, we are all exhausted. Uh, we really want this to be over. But at the same time, uh, I really believe in our army. I really think we can win this. And uh, I just I, I try not to let myself think about anything else at this point, because I know that uh, I've literally I am so not in the worst place in Ukraine right now. There are so many other people who feel worse. And right now, just feeling bad about myself and what happened to my life is really not, not the time and the place. 
Do you have a kind of um, red line after which, if it if the Russians cross it, you and your boyfriend would make the uh, decision? Maybe he couldn't, I, I suppose, but you could uh, just leave and go to Poland and join your other relatives. Um, honestly, I, I I don't think I ever thought about this because we really just plan hour by hour at this point. Um, I think that. At this point, I don't think there's that red line, which would happen. I mean, obviously, probably if they were already in the city here with their flags, but at that point, it'd probably be late. So I don't know. I don't think there's a red line in my head right now that would make me leave. Is the idea just to keep on moving if you have to keep on moving and keep going, you know, towards the West? And I guess a lot of people are probably doing that. A lot of people are moving, but they have great reasons to do that. They have kids or older parents or, you know, something like people they need to take care of and literally who cannot handle anything without them. Uh, I don't have anything like that. So I have, I guess, the luxury to stay here and pretty much throw all my resources at helping the army and helping the volunteers. I know you said that that, that you uh, believe in others that we have spoken to on this program in the past few days uh, in Ukraine have also expressed uh, their belief that, that Ukrainians will win out. But uh, what would happen, in your view, if the Russians succeed in taking over certainly the capital, but even if they don't, they are already being very effective in the southern part of the country uh, and in terms of access to the sea? The thing is that, that that's really the point of this war. They can literally never take over. There is not going to be a single person in this city who's going to want to be in Russia. There's not going to be a single person who's going to give up. Like 70-year-old grandmas uh, shooting down drones with the jar of cucumbers. Like, seriously, this is this is not the place where they can win. Even if they destroy the entire army and all the men and all the cities, Every single person who's still going to be here is going to fight them until their last breath. So I really have no idea what they're doing here because they cannot win this. Anastasia, thank you so much for talking to us. Stay safe and, and we hope we can speak again, okay? Thank you. Thank you. I hope so too. Anastasia there lives in Ukraine, has uh, been on the move four times, she said. But the plan right now is just to do everything she can to, to help the effort. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We will head back momentarily to Ukraine, but now... We're going to take a look at the markets again. The Dow's taking the big tumble down almost 800 points today over fears the U.S. economy could have a major slowdown because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, with us is Ron Insana, senior analyst, commentator on CNBC, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Uh, so, Ron, you know, people check in on the phone app and they see the red and they go again. And I guess, you know what, when we've got something going on like this, uh, this is what we're going to see. Yeah, and we may see more of it still, guys. I, you know, you've got the Federal Reserve meeting next week. It'll unless something changes dramatically, and, and they're in a quiet period and couldn't signal it necessarily, even if they were to change their minds, they're going to raise rates by a quarter point next week. The situation in Ukraine is pushing commodity prices to nearly never-before-seen levels, things like nickel and palladium and titanium, uh, rare materials that come out of places like Russia, corn and wheat, uh, and then, of course, most important, oil and other energy products are all skyrocketing. And so that 
not only raises uh, the specter of, of bigger inflation numbers, but also it cuts into consumers' pocketbooks and risks, as you suggested, uh, a slowdown in the economy while the Fed's raising rates. So it, it, it's looking down uh, the barrel, uh, two barrels of, of a loaded gun right now. So uh, we're what, firmly in a, a bear, or I was kidding before, a Russian bear market? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I think, you know, these measurements are always a little fuzzy, if you will, but um, the NASDAQ is now 20% below. Again, this has happened before in the last several weeks, below its all-time high. Uh, the S&P and the Dow around 10 12% below their most recent records. So they're firmly in a correction. The NASDAQ's in what we call bear market territory, and the average stock is down a lot as well. So a lot of damage is being done in the market, and so I'm, I'm of the mind that we're in the midst of a bear market that will not only now be – you know, dependent on how far we go down, but how long it takes to recover, which is, you know, again, one of the hallmarks of a bear market. It's both price and time. So we're going to start seeing that word stagflation in a lot of news reports again? Yeah, sadly. And, 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 and in a sense, I mean, I, I don't believe it to be entirely analogous to, to the 70s and the 80s, but you do have uh, commodities just going wild on, on this, uh, you know, war in Ukraine, uh, even more so than when we had the pandemic-induced supply shortages that, you know, created a, 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 an absence of computer chips and shortages in automobiles, and we have a, you know, mismatch in housing supply and demand. This just makes everything worse. And so it, it, it's, it, in my mind, it, it's a bit of a clumsy word because in 1980, Unemployment was 11%, inflation was 13%, and interest rates were double digits. Right now we've got interest rates down, um, unemployment down, but prices up. So uh, it's an inflationary environment that the Fed and other policymakers are going to have to deal with, maybe more harshly than we'd really enjoy. Ron Inzana, senior analyst and commentator at CNBC and host of the Market Scoreboard Reports. Okay, let's uh, return now to uh, Ukraine, Lviv, Ukraine, where we again find journalist Phil Itner. Phil, thanks for uh, waiting patiently while we got uh, through the stock market uh, fiasco here in this country. Uh, what is the latest where you are? Well, latest where I am is uh, really discussions about a potential ceasefire uh, and uh, a a way to create corridors for civilians to exit uh, four major cities uh, within Ukraine. Um, The uh, potential for peace talks seems to have stalled. Uh, The Russians have come out with a proposal uh, that is clearly unacceptable to the to the Ukrainians, including things like uh, you know immediately laying down all their weapons and uh, uh, rewriting their constitution to include neutrality, so they'll never join NATO or the EU. Um, and you know clearly Moscow knows that Kiev won't accept that. So we are very far off from any kind of settlement here on the ground in Ukraine. You mentioned the routes out of the out of the country or, or for these um, humanitarian reasons, but as we were saying earlier, they go into Russia or they go through Belarus, and this is not where people want to go. No, absolutely right. Uh, I mean, this is, this is another uh, way that the Russians are clearly trying to appear to be sensible, but they're in no way really actually presenting any kind of solution. Uh, the corridors that they propose, uh, as you mentioned, would go into areas where many Ukrainians don't want to go, Russia or Belarus. And in addition to that, um, there are 
a number of reports of the Russians breaking ceasefires and actually purposefully firing on um, civilians. There is a, there's a, a photo uh, that uh, a colleague of mine, Lindsay Adario, put out on the New York Times today. Uh, it is a very disturbing uh, photograph, um, and it shows a family that was trying to escape from one of these besieged cities and came under fire, and, and nearly the entire family was killed. It's, it's incredibly disturbing. But those stories are spread throughout Ukraine, and so even if they do open corridors, I think many civilians are going to be reluctant to do it because they've heard the tales of these uh, breaches in the ceasefire and uh, a clear targeting of civilians, which, of course, at some point will have to be investigated by presumably The Hague. So, Phil, if the Russians succeed in, in quote, taking over Ukraine, and I'm not quite sure what taking over would, would mean, it, it would seem to mean uh, endless urban warfare, would it not? Yes. Uh, that's the short answer. Um, the long answer is this. The Ukrainian people will never accept an occupation of this country again. They just won't. Um, the the overwhelming attitude, uh, the uh, sense of determination that these people have, um, there will be a, first there will be a conventional war, in a worst case scenario, first there will be a conventional war that the overwhelming might of the Russian military might very well win, and they might occupy cities around this country. But then there will be an insurgency, uh, or will First, I suspect, actually, there will be a pullback to a more secure location where I am in Lviv, um, which is a great deal uh, distance uh, away from where the, the combat is happening now. And they will mount a, a, a last kind of, you know, the last fort defense in this western enclave here around Lviv. And then if that should fall and uh, there is no front line, it will turn into insurgen an insurgency. I'm telling you, the Ukrainians will never, never accept an occupation of this country. And the, the sooner that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin realize that uh, and come to some sort of settlement, uh, the better, because uh, that's just not going to happen here. Phil Itner, who is uh, with us from Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, thanks. The U.S. and its European allies talking about banning Russian oil imports because of the war in Ukraine. But, of course, talking and doing two different things. Europe depends on Russian oil and natural gas. And the proposed ban comes as the prices here in Southern California and the rest of the U.S. are hitting record levels. No slowdown in sight. That was kind of the newsroom discussion today as people, hey, did you get gas? What's your yeah. station at? What's yours? Yeah. Six bucks, five ninety nine. Uh, Richard Spears, vice president of the oil field consultancy company Spears and Associates is with us. Uh, Richard, thank you. So let's start with us maybe and then we'll look at Europe too because there's various reports on this and some people are saying, well, the U.S. might do it and maybe we'll go it alone. Uh, so what does it look like for us if we go it alone? So the question is how much oil can come out of the ground anywhere else? And uh, here in the United States, we're one of the top producers of oil and gas. Most of it comes from what we call the Permian Basin, which is out in West Texas, a little bit of New Mexico. But also you've got another, gosh, 20 states produce a little oil and gas here and there. I live here in Oklahoma and it's one of the, one of the places to go. So the question is, if you cut off the Russian oil, and that's you know six or seven million barrels a day, can you make up six or seven million barrels a day? And the answer, the short answer is no. 
Here in the United States, we pump every barrel of oil that we possibly can every day of the week. We, we've been going full out ever since the recovery of the economy in the US and around the world, gosh, for the last year. And so every barrel of oil that can be produced is being produced. And the only way you can get an incremental barrel is if you drill another hole in the ground. And what so about, should, go, go ahead. Well, you, so your question should be, are we going to ramp up drilling activity in order to make uh, more oil come out of the ground? Well, that's one way of doing it. But what about all the reserves that the president says the U.S. and our allies intend to uh, unleash? You know, it, th those reserves are trapped in rock that's about, you know, two miles under your feet. Same thing in Saudi Arabia, same thing in West Texas, same thing in Oklahoma. These are not pools like a big old swimming pool that you just stick a straw down into and suck out of. This, the oil and gas is trapped into the tiniest little spaces between the rocks. We call it porosity. And to move from each little tiny space, uh, that movement highway is called permeability. And, uh, and it requires just so much work and so much investment to make that happen. Here in the United States, it takes about six or seven or eight million dollars per new well in order to make oil come out of the ground. And the oil, once you get the well drilled, it'll produce for 50 years. But to make an incremental amount of oil to come out of the ground, you know, more oil tomorrow than today, you have to drill a well, then you have to crack the rock open, we call that fracturing, and then you have to put a pump in it. And the average amount of time between spudding a brand new well, that means punching, starting to punch the hole in the ground, to the first oil coming out of the ground is about 12 months. So the price signal says right now, go back to work, go drill some holes in the ground. But the drilling rig that went to work today will have oil come out of that well in February or March of next year. Not as it easy as the, uh, not as easy as the swimming pool and the straw, like you said. No. Um, so is this why we're seeing these uh, talks of the possibility of maybe the administration easing the sanctions on, you know, Venezuela so they can start producing more, sell that on the international market? They're, they're looking for places to make up the difference from Russia if they say no more to the Russians. Well, right. If, if, uh, if they've paid any attention to the oil industry in Washington, and really they it doesn't appear that they have, but if they paid any attention to it, they know that there is not the ability of the industry to just turn a valve. It, it can happen with time, but, but, uh, but Wall Street and all the governments of Europe and, uh, and here in the Western part of the, of the world have told the oil industry to quit drilling for oil. We wanna go completely to renewables. And so the banks are closed to us. The, uh, the capital markets are closed. So any additional work we do has to be self-generated. We have to produce a little oil, sell a few drill bits, use that money then to drill another well. So we can't go borrow money to, to make this happen. So is the bottom line, Richard, the, the U.S. and the allies just, in your view, what? We won't end up banning Russian oil because it's just too, too costly and time-consuming to make up for it? You know, I, uh, I was listening to your news, uh, to Phil, who was just talking from uh, Lviv, Ukraine a bit ago, and, and I spent an hour yesterday on the phone with, uh, with a missionary we support in Lviv, and my wife and I are supporting the Christian community in Lviv right now to, uh, to save them. It seems uh, 
it seems unimaginable that we would continue to fund Russia by buying their oil and, uh, and do it because we, we want low cost energy. It just seems crazy to me that we would do that. But the alternatives are terrible, right? We, we give that guy back down in Venezuela sort of free reign and hey, destroy your country, give us your oil. Uh, Iran, you guys are bad actors, but we want your oil. We want cheap energy, so give us yours. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty tough situation that any politician is uh, trapped in. Richard Spears, Vice President of the oil field consultancy company Spears & Associates. Richard, thanks for talking to us. More In-Depth is on the way. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Two big COVID treatment pills from Merck and Pfizer have been hard to find, but uh, many people at least know that they exist. We've talked about them. There is uh, something else, though, a treatment to help immunocompromised people that either can't get a vaccine shot or don't respond well to it. It's called Evershield. It basically plugs in missing antibodies into a person's immune system, but good luck finding it in many places. Janet Handel is president and co-founder of the Transplant Recipients and Immunocompromised Patient Advocacy Group. Janet, thanks for being with us. Uh, why is it hard to find? It's hard to find because it's not every place. The, the, uh, the way that it worked by the Department of Health and Human Services at the federal level, and then the state health departments allocate it to individual facilities. It's You can't get it at every hospital or at every doctor's office, at limited places. And most people don't know what those limited places are. Uh, so that's the first reason why it's hard to find. And the second reason it's hard to find is even if you identify where they have it, there's typically not enough of it to uh, satisfy the demand. Um, the, and, and so people that, that are highest priority, so for transplant patients, that's people that have been transplanted within the last six months if you're like me that was transplanted, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you go to the back of the line. Um, so that, that's why it's difficult to find. Okay. So in, you kind of just hit on who it is for, right? We, we say immunocompromised and that can be varying degrees, but is it mainly for people who are at that top of that list? Like we are talking cancer patients or transplant patients or something like that. And what it is, is an antibody treatment. So basically they give you this cause you can't have the vaccine that gives you what a whole bunch of antibodies to COVID. So you have that, that well, kind of well, level of protection. Let me, let me, just clarify, uh, for people that are immunocompromised, they can take the vaccine, and most have taken four, five, and some even six doses of vaccine, but because their immune system weakened, they do not have a strong response to the vaccine if they have any response at all. Uh, some people take medications, like one of the medications is called rituximab, and for rheumatoid arthritis, if you take that, you will never form antibodies. So it's people that, you know, have had vaccines, but, but still have not formed antibodies and so are not protected uh, from the virus. And what Edishel does is it is a, a treatment, a preventative that will prevent you from getting the virus if you are immunocompromised. And it's only authorized to be given right now to people that are immunocompromised or who cannot take the vaccine for another reason. For instance, they might be allergic to it. So is there a fix in the works? Uh, is anybody doing anything about this situation so it will become more readily available? And also important, of course, that doctors know more about it and know how to prescribe it? 
this is one of the things that our group has been working on uh, to try and get the CDC and the FDA to undertake an active education program. Many doctors don't know that it exists, primary care physicians, and, and many patients don't know that it exists. You know, they don't know that this is something that can help them be safe uh, against the, the um, virus. A real problem that exists right now is so far the government has only ordered enough doses for 1.7 million people. And now the, the FDA came out and said, actually you need two doses. So right now, and you've got to have it twice a year. That would mean that in order to take care of all 7 million immunocompromised people, it would be 28 million doses. So right now there is not nearly enough ordered and they need to increase the or. Janet Handel there, president, co-founder of the Transplant Recipients and Immunocompromised Patient Advocacy Group, answered the next question, which is going to be, how long does it buy people? Well, you need it twice a year. Well, the days of showing proof of vaccination when you go to eat or watch a movie in L.A. City could be coming to an end soon, although many people will point out it never actually began in many places. A proposal in the city council now would stop businesses from checking. Do you mean to say, Charles, that people yes, have been I walking do. into bars yes. without showing vaccine cards? Yes, and I restaurants and a whole bunch of other places, yes. Uh, so L.A. County stopped the indoor proof of vaccination requirements for places like bars and breweries and clubs. Um, L.A. City may drop this. Uh, are we too fast? Are we too slow? Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. So, uh, doctor, first it was the masks. You can take those off. And now it looks like the uh, checks at the door might be going away. Your feelings on that? So, um, Mike and Charles, we actually never hit the metrics that the county said we needed to hit before we would roll back these uh, mask and vaccine requirements. So we were supposed to have moderate transmission that's less than 730 cases a day for two weeks. And we probably hit that somewhere around the, the beginning of March, March 2nd, 3rd. So we certainly haven't hit that two-week period. But as you pointed out, these are really difficult to enforce, and it doesn't necessarily make sense to have a rule that nobody can or will enforce. So that leaves it basically to each individual, right, to decide their own comfort level. If you feel comfortable now going into a, a restaurant and if they don't check for if everybody who is surrounding you is vaccinated, then you, I guess, have to make the decision whether you feel comfortable being there. That's exactly right. And and in part, that's probably where we should have been a long time ago in recognizing that we're all in this together and trying to help each other out rather than necessarily relying on mandates to do the right thing. I guess, though, people who likes the vaccination checks you know if you wanted to eat inside that was the thing that made you feel a little bit better and look i did too much of it also change with omicron i mean was this a little bit different in delta where you, you couldn't get it as easily when you're vaccinated or spread it as easily and, and omicron is kind of you know it can still happen so maybe that negates some of this but there are there's a group of people out there who felt so much better going into restaurants when they were checking and maybe now it's like oh we're about to go back to outside only for me or, or for you or whatever it is I think that's exactly right. And I, for one, also felt better when I did go out to a restaurant and they checked knowing that they were checking. Likewise, when I went to the, 
the Hollywood Bowl. So I did find that that reassuring, but I, I do recognize that it's difficult to place it on restaurant owners and other shopkeepers to be responsible for enforcing public health regulations. But but I guess to your point, uh, doctor, before about uh, you know having not met the metrics. Should everybody, uh, politicians in particular, yes, I'm talking to you, politicians in particular, should they just drop it at, at the pretense that all of this stuff is now being done for medical reasons or because of metrics and just admit that what they're doing is a pure political and business decision? Which is fine if you just say that's what it is. No, I, I think that's exactly right. A lot of what we've done throughout the pandemic has been trying to balance politics with public health. And we're often trying to phrase it as a public health response when, in fact, you're exactly right. It's being driven by politics. And I, I agree with you. I think transparency is always helpful. Is it time then to let the politicians take over? Because they kind of have. I mean, we followed the science before we had the vaccines and everything, and that was the, the mantra. And now case rates are what they are, but cases don't mean as much as they used to, and people aren't uh, having the worst outcomes as much as they used to. So let the politicians do what the politicians are going to do and open things up. And then, you know what, if it becomes winter and we got to close it down again, then, uh, hey, scientists, you're back up at, at home plate. Well, I don't think we ever want to ignore the science or ignore public health officials, but we do need to find that balance where we kind of get on with our lives, recognizing that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is not going to go away. That having been said, there are over 800 people right now in L.A. County hospitals with COVID-19. We're still averaging about 10 deaths a day and about 600 and 20 new cases a day. So this has not not gone away. It's still out there. And there is the risk that having dropped our shields, so to speak, uh, that it could bite us on the you know what in the not too distant future. Entirely possible. So, you know, globally right now, we're still averaging somewhere in the neighborhood of Four million new cases a day. So entirely possible that a new variant will pop up somewhere and begin to circulate around the world, just like Omicron, Delta and Alpha did beforehand. How strong do you think the effect of, you know, what everybody else is doing is on people? Because let's say you went to the movies and you looked around and, and your theater had a lot of people without their masks because either they checked for the vaccine still or, you know what, mask mandates have dropped. So you go, well, I don't want to be the only one wearing this. Or do you think it's the other way for some people? Like, well, I need to wear my KN95 because everybody else around me doesn't have their masks on. Or it's your workplace or in the elevator. If you walk in and everybody else has yours on, do you reach in your pocket? Oh, I got to put this on because I don't want to be the only guy in the elevator without my mask on. Well, I think both will happen, but I think the real important thing is just not to get aggressive or hostile about what people choose to do, right? So so don't get angry at somebody because they're wearing a mask or they're, they're not wearing a mask. So certainly do what you feel you need to do to be comfortable, and, and some people have immunocompromising diseases that put them at higher risk, so maybe they need to be wearing masks all the time. Others may feel like they're less at risk, but I, I think the important thing is is not to express our displeasure at each other if we take, make different choices.
But of course, that has not been the case throughout this pandemic. We've been so good at that, I can tell <laughs> yes. you. Yes, I mean, we, we have... There's just as much side-eye for people yeah. who are wearing masks for those who aren't, yeah. just from the other group. So when do we when do we actually learn that lesson? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, but if you can figure out how to get it at truck cross, I'll be eternally grateful for one. <laughs> All right. That's Dr. Uh, Timothy Brewer there, professor of epidemiology, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.